you're new with us, my name is Tim Deal. I'm one of the pastors here. And in case you're wondering, no, I don't always have a big red mark on my forehead. I feel like I've been answering that question a lot uh, this morning. Like, what? Who did you fight? And I really wish it was a cool story like that. Uh, I, I wish I had some great kind of adventurous tale to tell you um, that would make you go, whoa, that's awesome. But really, I, uh, I hit myself in the head with my visor in my car. Um, so... <laughs> That's really, that's it. And, uh, you know, one friend told me this morning, she's like, that, that's like something that somebody who, who's in a nursing home would do. That's the story you would hear. And I was like, um, yeah, you're right. So, um, sorry, but just so you know, so you don't have to wonder the entire time, that's what happened. Okay, so back to, the, uh, back to Wonder Woman. So that was a scene from DC's Wonder Woman. And, of course, in this scene, uh, young Diana, Wonder Girl, is learning about kind of the big picture story of the universe within, she, within which she lives. She's kind of learning the story from the past, but also how it connects to her present. And what you learn eventually is that knowing this story is instrumental in how she learns what part she plays in it and, and how she decides what her life is going to look like. The big picture informs all of that. Well, we're starting a new series this week that we are calling Vista, The View From Here. And we're calling it that because, well, if you've ever been to a vista or an overlook, you know that the whole idea is that you come up to a place that allows you to kind of get a glimpse of everything. to get a glimpse of things in a a different way than what you can see them when you're on the ground. You know, it's one thing to be kind of in the middle of something. You see it one way, but when you get kind of up above it, you see it in a whole new light. I was thinking about this the other day when uh, Andrew, the the other pastor here at Koinos, and I were down in Reading at the Opportunity House. And if you've ever been to the Opportunity House, you know that the drive-in is essentially just like any other drive through the city. You're passing by row homes, there's the, the occasional corner store, there's lots of people out and around. Uh, nothing particularly unique about it over and against anywhere else. And then when we went into the Opportunity House, they kind of took us on a tour of the building. And at one point they took us up to, I don't know if it was like the third floor or what floor exactly we were on, and, and they took us out onto this, this porch th- that overlooked the street. And we got this view. And we must have passed this mural three times as we were circling looking for parking, right? Like we just, we kept going around and and we didn't notice it once. But then suddenly when we're up on this porch and looking out, not only do we see the city differently, right? Like we see the the community gardens and we see the playgrounds that we were kind of um, oblivious to when we were just driving around, but we also see this beautiful image that we completely missed until we got up above it and were able to look down. And in the series we're starting, uh, we're looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And this is one of the, the many letters that Paul has written in the New Testament. And this letter, more than most, gives us kind of a, a big picture view of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a Christian. It's like Paul kind of pans out so that we can see the whole landscape so that we can get a bird's eye view. Now, <clears throat> a bit of background on Ephesus, just so 
we know kind of who Paul's talking to as he writes this letter. Ephesus was a, a very affluent port city in uh, what's now Turkey. So it was, it's no longer a port city. Interestingly, like over the years, because of the buildup of silt, etc., it doesn't sit right on the water. Uh, but at the time, it did. And so it, it had a lot of commerce, people coming in, ships coming in, trading various things. Along with that, it also had what is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, which was this, this huge edifice, and people would come from all over the known world to worship, to see it. And so it was this, a really key place both for kind of spiritual life, but also for commerce. And they were very kind of tightly tied together, which we'll learn more about in a few minutes. Most New Testament scholars who look at this letter to the Ephesians think that it probably was a, kind of a letter that was meant to be sent to a bunch of different churches, that it wasn't specifically written just to the church at Ephesus. And the reason they think that is because, um, unlike a lot of Paul's letters, it doesn't address specific issues that are going on. If, if you've read any of the letters, you know that in most of them, they get really specific about some things that are happening in each particular community. The, the letter to the Ephesians doesn't do that. It's a little bit broader. And in fact, in some of the earlier manuscripts, uh, there are some that don't even have the, the word Ephesus in it. And so one theory is that potentially um, it was for a, a number of different churches, and so there wasn't a specific one named. Um, so just to kind of get a sense, that, that might explain some of why this is a little bit more of a broad strokes, here's what it means to be a follower of Christ, than addressing any specific kind of thing. That said, there's a lot of practical implications to it. So my hope is that even as we see this, this big picture, we'll be able to kind of look at that and say, so what does that mean for us today? So, so let's jump in. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. Again, this is in the New Testament. It's kind of towards the end of your Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible to read along, we'll have the scripture up here on the screen. So Ephesians chapter 1. This letter is from Paul chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus, who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He's so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. God's purpose was that we Jews, who were the first to trust in Christ, would bring praise and glory to God, and now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believe in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. 
He did this so we would praise and glorify him. All right, well, we're going we're gonna to stop there. We could keep going. Um, we're not going to be able to cover everything uh, in, Ephes- in Ephesians as we go through this over the next couple of weeks, partly because Paul is a really dense writer. If you've ever read any of Paul's writings, one of the things you find is that he's someone who packs a lot into a short amount of space, a small amount of space. So he, he's one of those writers you kind of have to chew on. So there's a whole lot here. So incur- I encourage you along the way to be reading with us um, at home, to be reading. We'll be going roughly about a chapter a week throughout the next couple of weeks. Um, so just kind of read along at home. I'm sure there are things we're not going to talk about here on a Sunday morning that'll kind of jump out to you and that'll give you something to think about, to chew on. Um, and that's, that's great. If you don't have a Bible at home to read, uh, please grab one. We have them on the counter in the back. We'd love to give that to you as a gift to you. Take it with you. Um, but a couple of things that I, I wanted to kind of jump in on and, and focus here as we look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Two main things. The first is this theme that we see Paul referencing that tends to be a theme that Paul comes back to again and again and again. And that's this idea of adoption. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he focuses on this idea of God adopting Gentiles into his family. And this is kind of a key It's a a key focal point for Paul as he goes on and writes his letters to other churches as well. This this image of God adopting us into his family. Now, what we need to understand as as we kind of think about that is not that Gentiles, which is most of us, were kind of this this afterthought for God. This this thing that he was like, well, I kind of feel bad for them, so I'll, I'll figure out a way to create space. If you ever know a family who has, uh, has adopted, one of the things that seems to be common for most families that I know of who've gone through adoption is not that they were like, you know what, I think there are, there are just kids out there that need help, and so I want to do something. So we're, I think we'll, we'll adopt because it's a good thing to do. Generally speaking, the people I know anyway, I, I should say... Um, you know, in the, my limited experience, but I've talked to a lot of people who've had adoptions. Almost all of them would articulate it a little bit more like there was just, we knew our family wasn't complete. There was someone else who needed to be a part of our family. And so we chose into adoption because we believed that our family wasn't all it was supposed to be. And it was when they finally were able to adopt that child that they felt like, yeah, this is now, now our family. This is who we're supposed to be as a family. We're, we're complete. You find that again and again when you talk to adoptive families. And we see this theme when we look at how God views adoption in Paul's letter. Paul says it was God's pleasure to adopt us. It wasn't God's obligation It wasn't that God kind of felt painted into a corner and he kind of had to do something, but that God's pleasure was in welcoming us into his family, that the family wasn't complete without us. This is a really important, um, it's an important way in which Paul articulates what actually happens in God welcoming us into his family, in God saving us. Is because often God can get painted as the one who kind of, you know, he, he kind of half-heartedly rescues us because he feels like he's morally obligated to do it because he's God. 
like we're kind of a wretched bunch of people who nobody would really love, but God's nice, and so he rescues us. But this isn't the story that Paul gives us at all. It's that God's pleasure is found in welcoming us into his family, in making space at the table for us. You're part of God's family because you were made to be part of God's family. God welcomes you in because his family is not complete without you. He wants you. He is pleased to bring you into his family. That's an important way for us. That's an, that is, it's critical for us to understand this is how God is, is under, this is how Jesus reveals God to us as the one who's pleased to welcome us into his family. So that's one. But the second one, and the one I want to kind of park on for the rest of our, our time together this morning, is that Paul is really convinced as we read through this intro to Ephesians that this is all going somewhere. That all of this that what's happening in the universe is moving in a particular direction for a particular reason. That it's not as though um, everything is just kind of haphazard. And even when it's when, when Paul talks about God's love, it's not as though, you know, sometimes we can think of God's love as this kind of impersonal thing that we can choose to experience or not. Almost like God's this ginormous waterfall that is like kind of flowing and there's all this spray from it and you can kind of choose to get close and get hit by the spray or not but it's just kind of out there it's it's the, the love itself is passive but this isn't how paul describes god at all in in this letter paul gives a really clear picture that god god's love is driving history forward that there is a momentum to the universe and that God's love is driving it towards a particular end. This is all going somewhere. Just think about the language that Paul uses. He, he uses language like God chose us. God decided in advance. God is fulfilling his own good plan. Talks about God's purpose. But the big one, I think, that at least that jumps out to me, is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, At the right time, He, God, will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. This is all heading somewhere. And not somewhere that, like, it's kind of, who knows where it's going. It's going to go somewhere and we'll get there eventually. But this is all moving to a particular point. God's love is moving human history towards a place in which all authority is given to Christ, who, who rules over everything. And it's not just kind of a future reality. If you're familiar at all with the Gospels, with the, the biographies of Jesus, at the, at the end of Matthew, the first biography of Jesus we come to, Jesus says the words, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Like, now that this future reality, this one day all things will come under Christ's authority, has been initiated now. That Jesus is Lord now. In fact, that's, that's the phrase that was kind of most often on the lips of early followers of Jesus. That the good news was that Jesus is Lord. 
over and against Caesar. Not that, not that we are beholden to this, this emperor with all of the power and might that he wields, but that, in fact, even though most of what we experience in life would say something else, we believe that Jesus is, in fact, Lord. Not Caesar, but Jesus. That was the core belief. That, that was the good news that the early Christians held to. It's not that Caesar's in control. Jesus is. And that's absolutely critical because if the world is not if the world is not under the control of a being who is driven by love, if in fact all of this is simply what it is, and we don't really know where it's all going, the world is actually a pretty scary place to be. I was in with a group of people uh, a couple of days ago, and we were having a conversation, and one of them commented, you know, I just don't even know, I, I don't even know who to believe anymore. There's so much that's just insane in the world. It's so, it's so crazy out there. I just don't even know who to believe. It's like the world's out of control. And it's really easy to feel that way, right? Like, it's really easy to, to look at your newsfeed, to, to just have conversations with other people, to kind of pay attention to what's going on in the world, and go, oh my gosh, it's kind of crazy out there. And if there's no kind of end game, if there's no place that this is all going, then it's a perfectly natural and rational response for us to be fearful and self-protective, to guard ourselves against other people, to live life in a sense of, of fear and anxiety. Totally makes sense if we're not going anywhere in particular. And we see this actually play out in the people in Ephesus. So Paul spent about two years with the, uh, this group of people that he, he wrote this letter to. He went to the city of Ephesus, and we read this in Acts chapter 9. It's in Acts' this kind of history book after the first four books, first four gospels in the New Testament. And in that, we, we come to this place where we read about a, a two-year stint that Paul spends in Ephesus preaching, telling people about Jesus. And it's pretty successful. He apparently is pretty good at this. And so lots of people are responding. Lots of people are, are putting their faith in Christ. And the response is, they're no longer worshiping the god Artemis. Or Artemis. They're not. Because Jesus is Lord. And so they're rejecting that. Well, this has some, this has some consequences for those who get their living off of people who go to the temple of Artemis. So we read this in, um, in Acts chapter 19. We hear it from this guy named Demetrius, who is a, a silversmith. He, he brings some other silversmiths around him, and he says this, starting in verse 25. He says, Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. But as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not 
just talking about the loss of public respect for our business, I'm also concerned that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. At this, their anger boiled, and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Well, that escalated quickly. Um, So a riot ensues, because these guys are so fearful about where all of this is going that their only response is to protect themselves, right? To, To stir up a riot to stir up anger and violence to protect their their well-being their business and again it how you view what's actually going on in the universe directly impacts your choices and for them that was actually a fairly logical choice right that they're at risk because what you think is actually going on in the world matters in terms of how you act we, um, we've recently been doing some remodeling in our attic. For years, our, uh, our girls were living in the space. We have three girls. They were living in the space. Um, and it was, you know, it was fine. It was kind of finished-esque. But there were, there's like water stains and tiles that are sagging. And, and it, it was like the, the walls were so paper thin that one time my wife was actually going to move the bed. And she went to support herself against the wall. And her hand went through the wall. So there was just this hole that was right there in the wall that reminded us how great it was. Um, and so, you know, for years and years, we were like, yeah, someday we should do something. And finally, we got to the point where we're like, yeah, we, we, just need to, we just need to do it. So we started doing it this year. And one of the things we got really excited about was the potential for a crawl space that could go above the ceiling. Because we don't have much storage space in our house. And so we thought, oh, this would be great. Well, once they build this, we'll just kind of leave that, you know, the space between the ceiling and the peak wide open so we can stick stuff there and that'll be great. And we talked to our contractor and he was like, yeah, cool, let's do that. And so we were really excited, probably more than we should be about empty space, but we were. And so um, this is all going along and you know, we're, we're, this is our expectation. This is going to be where we store all of our stuff. And finally the inspector came and he was like, yeah, you can't do that. And we're like, what do you mean we can't do that? It's our house. It's empty space. Let us do it. And he was like, no, 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 you don't understand. It the beams aren't, the, the house isn't made for that. The house is not made to sustain that kind of weight on the beams. So if you begin stacking all of this stuff up there, it's going to compromise the structural integrity. It's not going to be good. You can't do it. Now, we were disappointed, right? Very disappointed because now we don't have space to put things. So if you have extra space that you don't have things and we could put stuff there, let me know. Um, but it's, it's currently all in our garage, which isn't great. But um, that, that was really disappointing. But we were really grateful that somebody who actually knows how our house is built was there to go, that's not going to be good in the long run. Like, I get that that makes sense for you because you don't understand how this works. Let me help you understand how this works so that you can make decisions that are better even if they're not exactly what you would do or what you would want to do. And, and this is what happens when we suddenly realize what's true, right? Like, what's actually true about the way things are is it changes the way in which we act. It 
reorients us. It helps us act in ways that are actually good for the long run and not just good for what we feel in the moment. And this is how this, this understanding of a God whose love is moving history in a particular direction helps to reorient us, helps to change the way in which we act in the moment. It reorients, reshapes our understanding of how one is to live well in the world. And this is, this is good news for us. We can live with the assurance that the God who in love has welcomed us into his family is working in love to bring about his good purposes in the world. That's really good news. Even though it doesn't always feel that way. Even though what we experience in life doesn't always reassure us that that's true. But it's sometimes the case that what's happening externally isn't an exact representation of what's true internally. For example, um, you may have heard of two gentlemen named uh, Copernicus and Galileo. They're famous for being uh, two of the first, at least the most famous two, who were like, hey, what we observe on earth is kind of fooling us. It's not actually telling us the way that things are, right? Because what is one of the most natural observations you would make as someone living on the planet? Well, every morning the sun rises in the east, it makes its way across the sky, and in the evening it sets in the west. That's obvious to anyone. And the earth is clearly stationary. It's not moving, right? Like, nobody's going, like, there's, it's just not. Clearly, we all observe that, we all experience that. Well, Copernicus and Galileo and others did some work, and they're like, actually, it's not that way at all. It turns out, as you well know, the earth orbits the sun. Now, to us, we're like, well, of course. But for them, that was like pushing back against everything they experienced about the earth. I mean, what do you mean the earth is moving? Like, people would be, like, blown away if we were really moving as fast as you're claiming that we're moving. Nobody experiences that as true. But the fact is that it's true. And understanding that that was true reoriented the way that people understood themselves and the world and changed the way people thought about their place in the universe and understood science moving forward. It was, a really, it was really good to discover what was true, but it was really disorienting. And it didn't always line up with their experience. And this is the same thing with the articulation that Jesus is Lord, that this is all moving somewhere in which Jesus has authority over all things, and that Jesus even now has authority over all things. That it doesn't always feel that way. Experientially, that doesn't always feel true. But the invitation from Paul and from Jesus himself is to live in hope, to live in faith, that Jesus is in fact Lord. And because of that, to be freed from fear. Because 
actually the, the biggest impediment to us becoming people who are, are living a, a full life in relationship with God and others. We often think about, and we talked about this before, we often think about doubt as like the biggest impediment to faith to a robust relationship with God and with other people. But it's not actually doubt, right? Because doubt can actually fuel really helpful questions, really great exploration. After all, doubt's what drove Copernicus and Galileo to discover what was true. Doubt can be a really positive motivator in moving us towards truth. Doubt's not the problem. The problem is fear. That fear is actually the thing that most keeps us from experiencing life to the fullest, from experiencing life in relationship with God and others. That it, it's fear that keeps us from fully living in the way of Jesus in the world. It's our fear. And we experience this in practical ways all the time, right? That, that our fear is that if we're generous with our resources, with our time, with our money, then that we won't have enough for ourselves. That, that if we're too open, if we... If we if we open ourselves up to others, that, that we'll be hurt, that we'll be taken advantage of. And so we close off, we protect ourselves. We fear being rejected by other people, and so we choose not to take the step to know anyone well, to, to reveal anything about ourselves. We fear, fear global events and, and pr- things that are happening out of our control, whether they're natural events or, or events that are, are caused by humans. And it leaves us in a place of anxiety and worry about the future. Whatever you're afraid of, whatever particular flavor your fear takes, Paul's invitation for us is to remember that at the right time, he, Jesus, or he God, will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. That the good news is this is all going somewhere. And so you don't have to be afraid. And and when we're not afraid, it's remarkable how our choices begin to change. I was thinking about this when I was reading about someone I'd never heard of before, a guy named Brendan the Navigator. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of him. Brendan the Navigator was an Irish monk from the 6th century who is, he kind of, his story was a bestseller in medieval times. And Brendan was so convinced that God was with him and that he was called to be someone who shared the good news that Jesus is Lord with other people that he and some buddies who were also monks, they, they made a, a canoe and they put animal skins around it. I believe it's called a coracle. I think that's a thing. Um, and they, they wrapped it in animal skins and they set sail from Ireland out into the ocean. And... Uh, Supposedly, they, they visited Greenland and Iceland, and legend has it they may have even made it as far as North America. And there's fantastic tales about, uh, you know, my, my favorite is one in which they celebrated Easter Mass on a small island, and once they were finished with Mass, they realized it was actually the back of a whale. Did that actually happen? Eh, I don't know, but it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, but there's story after story of these fantastic adventures that they had. Because they set sail, not, not ignorant of the dangers of the sea. I mean, there were lots of seafaring people at the time, and they knew that you could very well go out and never return. It's not that they were ignorant that this was potentially a, a risk they were taking, but it was that they actually believed that 
Jesus is Lord. And so because of that, we're going to live in such a way as we believe that Jesus is Lord. And trust that whatever happens will be good, that we will be safe. Maybe not always safe physically. There's, you know, we remember that the Jesus who is Lord himself didn't always remain safe physically. He ultimately is crucified. But that the world is a safe place to be because it's under the authority of Jesus. Um, Brendan wrote a prayer that I found really helpful, and I want to read it to you. This is Brendan the Navigator. It goes like this. It says, Help me to journey before the familiar and into the unknown. Give me the faith to leave old ways and break fresh ground with you. Christ of the mysteries, I trust you to be stronger than each storm within me. I will trust in the darkness and know that my times, even now, are in your hand. Tune my spirit to the music of heaven and somehow make my obedience count for you. If Jesus is Lord, as Paul is saying, as Paul is calling us to believe that all authority has been given to him, then we can have the courage to journey beyond the familiar, as Brendan the Navigator says. To not live small lives of self-protection, but to live lives that take us out, that move us beyond our fear, that cause us to to give generously and love unreservedly, to not waste time worried about things like accumulating wealth and stuff, to love our neighbor, to love our enemy, even when we're not sure how that's going to go, to step out into that new venture that we feel that we feel called to, that we feel we were made to be a part of, even though there's some risk involved. If Jesus is Lord, then we can live without fear. I want to end with a quote from Dallas Willard. Uh, I think we've read parts of this quote before, but it's one of those that I come back to time and time again, so I hope it's helpful for you to hear again. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Willard says this, It was knowledge of the presence and unfailing availability of God to those who trust him that led Jesus to say all the beautiful things which we wistfully acknowledge but hardly believe to be true. All of those things about birds and flowers being in the care of God, of course, and about how we need never be anxious or afraid no matter what comes, even crucifixion. The basic idea is that this world, with all its evil, pushed to the limit in what Jesus went through going toward and on the cross, is a perfectly good and safe place for anyone to be, no matter the circumstances if they have only placed their lives in the hands of Jesus and his Father. We never have to do what we know to be wrong, and we never need be afraid. I wonder how our lives would look different, and how our communities would look different, if we were people who lived free from fear, who weren't, didn't make our decisions based on self-protection, but we're able to push through fear to do what we 
knew to be right, knew to be good, knew to be loving, because at the end of the day, we believe Jesus is Lord. What is the thing that causes you to most go into self-protection mode, that most causes you to kind of draw a circle around yourself and the people closest to you? What causes you to pull in? And what one thing might change in terms of how you act if you weren't afraid? What's one thing in your life that might look different if you weren't afraid? So I just want to invite you to think about that for a moment. Again, uh, it's just going to be about 90 seconds to, uh, to two minutes, and then we'll wrap up with some Q&A. I know for me, I, it, it's often that I forget that I lose sight of the truth that Jesus is Lord that I live my life motivated more out of fear and self-protection than out of a sense that it's safe to live fully in love with God and others would you help me and my friends this morning to reorient ourselves, to, to actually begin to believe that Jesus is Lord. Not just someday, but even now. And that because that's true, we can live free from fear, lives full of courage and faith and hope and love. Empower us by your spirit. 